good morning. What a great looking group of people up there, huh? One big Brady bunch of Christians all together. It's great. <laughs> well, it's good to be here with you this morning. Uh, I just got back two days ago, two nights ago from Israel. I was there on a, leading a teaching tour uh, for 10 days. And so it's good to be back with you. It was a, a pleasure to be there with some of the families here from, from Seacoast and uh, to walk around and, and walk and see the places where a lot of these events in Scripture took place, and uh, to be in some of my old stomping grounds where my wife and kids, we used to live, so it's always fun to be back there in, in the old neighborhood and reconnect with some friends and, and places. But it is good to be back. Um, I'm mostly on this time period now, so, but if I doze off a little, just someone let me know and I'll come back to you. And... Uh, <laughs> We'll get going. But I also want to um, have us uh, to let you know that the church in Israel sends their greetings. And uh, we had the privilege of our, our tour guide was a Christian who lives in Israel. There's only, it's the smallest minority people group in Israel are the, the followers of Jesus. Uh, less than 1% of a country of over 7 million uh, who are followers of Jesus. And um, so, but we got to interact with with friends and, and followers of Jesus who live on both sides of the separation uh, wall. So some from West Bank and some on the other side in Israel proper who are followers of Jesus. And they do send their greetings. And they have one of the most challenging situations uh, to, of any Christians in the globe uh, to be followers of Jesus. So it's fun to interact with them and, and to um, be able to send their greeting to you. So that was good. We also want to remember our team that's in Congo right now. We already saw their update. And in just a moment, we'll pray for them. And uh, they, I just love the work that's being done there as they are working in these Tabitha centers, which are uh, these centers that are essentially uh, rescuing women from the street who are working on the street uh, because they have no opportunity uh, for work. And, um, and to people who are followers of Jesus are giving them hope and giving them a new uh, lease on life. And so uh, we want to just encourage and pray for our team that's over there, as well as the ones who are training the pastors and, and working with the pastors' wives who are giving their lives uh, to help people know about Jesus Christ, um, which is an exciting thing. And uh, in light of just the global nature of some things, I also do want to remind you in a couple weeks when uh, on November 8th, when we have that weekend where World Vision is going to be using our campus to help raise awareness about the Syrian refugee crisis and and just a reminder that there are Christians and there are non-Christians who are suffering as a result, and there's something that we can do. And so we have the privilege of having Rich Stern, who's the president of World Vision, will be sharing with us that weekend. Um, I met him a few months ago and had uh, dinner with him, and he uh, agreed to come and, and share with us that Sunday morning. So um, this is one of the world's largest nonprofit organizations who will be coming to our church just to talk about the Christian response to the Syrian crisis. So... Kind of in light of all those global things, I thought we should uh, be aware of those. But we do want to remind you too, as a church, we are a church who loves our community. We love Encinitas. We love North San Diego County. We desperately want to be people who are letting the people in our everyday life know about Jesus. And, and that we want the, be, them to be affected by us. And there are times that we, though, want to extend who we are globally. And so that's kind of why we're interested in those things. But pray with me as we pray for our Congo team and our brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for our team that's in Congo. We pray that you bless them with safety, with wisdom, with clarity. And just, God, we ask that 
um, they could be an encouragement to the followers of Jesus in Congo who are working so hard to give people hope who have never experienced hope that comes from you and you alone. And uh, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in our own community, the other churches that are meeting as we speak, and those that are meeting throughout our country, throughout the globe, who are all coming together to worship you this morning, the Lord of the universe. And we ask that we could stand in with uh, one accord with all of them and uh, declare that you are God of this whole thing. So we thank you for this time. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. We are going to continue our series through the book of Ephesians, and one of the reasons we decided to do this series is, and we've called it Your Life in the Family of God. And one of the reasons that we've decided to do this is because the book of Ephesians is really a letter written by a guy named Paul to a group of Christians in a town called Ephesus and the surrounding region. And he, he wrote this letter to encourage them and to give them instructions of, that would say, hey, now that you have new life in Christ... This is how you can learn to interact with one another, how you interact with your community, and how you interact with the the government and the world around, and how you, as a follower of Jesus, now should conduct yourselves in a way that lifts up the name of God. Now, Ephesus, one of the reasons we chose this, too, is because you've got to know a little bit about Ephesus. See, this city was uh, one of the large cities in the ancient world. Um, At the time of the writing, probably had about 200,000 people. It was a port city at the time. It was a very important um, center of commerce and of trade. The exchange of ideas was huge here. Um, But Ephesus had some other things going for him. It was very successful and a wealthy city. It also was a center, uh, one of the centers of the spiritual world in the ancient world. They had one of the great wonders or, uh, of the ancient world, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was a temple to Art- Artemis. Uh, the Romans called it the temple to Diana, and it was a goddess of fertility. And so uh, Artemis was a central piece of the identity of the people in Ephesus. And their identity of knowing that this is who we are as a as a city, Artemis is a big part of, of our identity and lifting up Artemis, this goddess of fertility. In fact, we read in Acts chapter 19, when Paul is in Ephesus with some of his followers, that the people and the silversmiths and those who made idols for Artemis were not happy as people were converting to Christianity. Because as they converted to Christianity, they took their idols, which is statues of Artemis, which archaeologists have found, dozens of these, and they said, we no longer are going to worship Artemis, so we're going to get rid of our idols. So the silversmith said, wait a minute, you're ruining our economy. These Christians are messing things up because our economy is partly based on the worship of Artemis. And they started this uh, uh, uprising, a riot of sorts, and they brought all these people into the ancient amphitheater that seated 25,000 people, so you can see the, the size of the city. And, and they were accused of... of handling this in a disorderly way. So we know that Artemis and the worship of this goddess was important to them. We also know that philosophy and knowledge was an important piece of their identity as a, as a city as well. Uh, near the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century, they built a, a large library that contained up to 12,000 scrolls. Any of you who have visited Ephesus, you've probably seen this. They have the facade of it has been reconstructed. It's called the Library of Celsus. And anything in the ancient world that had 12,000 documents in it will let you know that this was important to them. Knowledge uh, was a big piece of who they were as people. 
uh, inscribed above this library were four virtues that we know were important to the people of Ephesus. And those virtues said wisdom, knowledge, intelligence, and valor. And, and those are the things that they wanted to pride themselves in, is this kind of being about learning and being about philosophy and being about spirituality and, and all of these things. One of the things about Ephesus that maybe you have already picked up on is it is a lot like North San Diego today. Uh, the economy was strong. There was a lot of wealth in Ephesus. It was a spiritual town, yet not Christian. If you drive down 101 in our own city, you might say we are spiritual, yet not Christian. Knowledge was a huge part, and ideas and philosophy were a huge part of their identity. You know, according to the 2010 census, Encinitas is one of the most educated cities uh, per capita in the entire state of California. The amount of people holding PhD degrees and postgraduate degrees, it's almost, we're in the top echelon of our entire state. So we're in an area that values education, that values philosophy, that values wisdom, that values commerce, and that's spiritual. So when, as we go through the book of Ephesians, keep that in mind that as Paul is writing instructions to followers of Jesus who are figuring out their new life in Christ, their world was a lot like our world. And the things they were going through were a lot like what you and I go through in our daily life. So keep that in mind as we jump into today's text. Now, where we are in the series is we began, and Paul began with the first few verses talking about our identity in Christ and, and how Jesus has made it all known because of the work of Jesus. He's adopted us as his sons and daughters. Last week, as Bill taught, he talked about the Holy Spirit, and one of the identifying marks of a follower of Jesus is the Holy Spirit on our lives as a testimony to who we are. Now today we're going to pick it up in verse 15. And, and Paul changes gears a little bit because he's been talking about what is true of us as followers of Jesus. But then he changes gears and what we're going to look at today is a prayer that Paul has for the Christians in Ephesus. And I believe because the Christians in Ephesus lived in a world very similar to our world, this prayer applies to us today. These are things that Paul would want for us to be true in our own lives. So let's take a look at this, picking it up in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. And we already looked at some of these. Our, our worship team read this to you, but we'll break it down as we go through this. Ephesians 1.15 begins, Paul says, For this reason I too, and he's saying after um, we've been talking about the identity of the Holy Spirit in our lives, says, For this reason I too, after having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and having heard of your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in knowledge of him. So you start to hear these words that are important to the people in Ephesus. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? Now we're going to stop right there. So Paul opens up and, and says, I'm going to pray this prayer for you. And, and in a moment, we'll look at the three things he really prays for. But before he gets to that, in verse 17, 18, we see that he distinguishes a couple things. I want to look at it more. Paul prays, he says, I pray that God will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, 
This word knowledge here is a Greek word, and it's unique. It's used 20 times in Scripture. And it's epignose. So epig... I actually mispronounced that. It's epignose. But you got that. So... (laughs) And this word here is a word for knowledge, but it is experiential knowledge. It's not factual knowledge. It's not just something that you put into your head, but this is a word that means knowledge that you experience, that you've lived through. We see him use it a, a few other times. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, he says this, Avoid those who have a form of godliness, but who deny its power. In verse 7, he said, they are always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Using that word, that word that means experiential knowledge. Again, in Romans chapter 10, verse 2, Paul's talking about a, a certain group of people. And he says, they have a zeal for God, but not according to a knowledge of truth. A pignose of truth, an experiential knowledge. They have knowledge in their heads, but they haven't experienced it. They haven't lived it out. And Paul begins by saying, I pray that God would grant you this type of knowledge. Now, when I was in college, I had this habit, some would say a pretty nasty habit, and it was I liked to jump out of airplanes, and and I was into skydiving. So, and, and I know some of you think anyone who's into skydiving, there's something wrong with them. And you may well, may, may well be right. But nonetheless, I loved skydiving. It was something I got into. And I, and I know some of you would say, why would you jump out of a perfectly good airplane, right? And of course, I need to let you know the airplanes we flew were not perfectly good. So <laughs> that was part of the issue. And they say the most dangerous part of flying is landing. So I figured they got me in the air. I'm not sure they'll land it, so I'm getting out. But uh, so we got into skydiving. Now, this wasn't the skydiving school where you strap yourself to another person who knows what they're doing and you jump out. This is one that you always do it on your own. But to do it on your own, you had to take a six-hour class and learn all about skydiving. You had to pass a test. And then you you start off with a series of jumps. The first one is called static line, where it opens a chute for you. You work your way up to what's called a hop and pop, where you jump and you throw your chute as soon as you get out. And then you get higher and higher elevations. Now, One of the things about this, though, part of the class and the learning, is there's this very important section of it, and it's called shoot malfunctions. (laughs) Now, if you're going to pay attention to any part of class, (laughs) when it gets to shoot malfunctions, that's the time you start listening. And so we got to shoot malfunctions, and I learned there's a couple different types of malfunctions. There's a minor malfunction, and a minor malfunction is when your chute just doesn't, it just kind of doesn't work. <laughs> and so if your chute just kind of doesn't work, there's different types of malfunction, and you have a, a little bit of time to figure out if you can get your chute to fully work. If your chute doesn't get to the point where it will fully work, you've got to cut it away and have your reserve chute and hope there are no malfunctions available with your reserve chute. The other type of malfunction is a major malfunction. Now, when you have a major malfunction, what you do is you fold your hands like this and start to pray. And <laughs> you cut your chute away and you hope the second one works. Now, this is all part of factual knowledge, putting knowledge into your head. You need to know these things. So one day, I am skydiving. I took a jump. Everything went well. I landed. And my jump master said, how was it? It's like, it was awesome. That was fun. He goes, you want to go again? I thought, sure, I'll go again. And um, the side note is this, is it cost me like 25 bucks a jump. That was it. So it was just a one-way, halfway ticket, really. So um, 
So I thought, yeah, I can do that. That sounds great. We'll go again. And it was the day I had to learn how to pack my own chute. So I learned how to pack my own chute. And my jump master was there to show me how to do it. We did it. Got up in the plane. And I jumped. And the second time I jumped that day, my chute decided it didn't want it all the way open. It had a minor malfunction. Now, some of you have never skydived before. You'd say, I don't care what kind of malfunction it is. That's called major. It's just minor, not a big deal. So... um, This one was called a line over. Now, on a parachute, we use the rectangular parachutes, and there were strings that are attached to each side of it, and when you pull on the strings to one side, it partially collapses your parachute and gets more air so you can turn. So that's how it goes down. Now, a line over is one of those strings, one of those lines was wrapped over the top of it. So when your chute opens, one side opens, and the other one's still squished like this, all the way closed. And what happens is it makes you go down like this, in a circle, and um, a little faster than you want to be going down in a circle. (laughs) But what you're told to do from your training, the factual knowledge in your head, is just relax, it's okay, it's only a minor malfunction. (laughs) So the first thing you do is you relax, and then you begin pulling on the sides of your strings like this and kicking your legs. Now, I am so grateful that that's what you do because that is the natural response. When your chute doesn't open is you start kicking your legs and pulling. I mean, so it's really quite brilliant that that's what you do. And as that happens, and my chute was um, partially collapsed, and I had a radio on with the guys on the ground, and they said, you have a a malfunction. And I'm like, I know. (laughs) I'm not doing this on purpose. And the time is going by. One, two seconds, three seconds. And I begin pulling. He goes, okay, just, you know, Pretty soon you might have to cut. I know, I know what I'm doing, you know. Finally, eight seconds, boom, the chute opens up. The line comes off, and then I'm fine. Coming the rest of the way down. I decided not to jump again that day, but... (laughs) What happened at that moment, though, is in my life, my knowledge of parachuting went from stuff that was up here to my epignose, my experiential knowledge. Now it wasn't just information that meant something. It was, I've been there, I've done that. So you tell me about a line over and I say, I get it. I've been through that. I know what that looks like. So Paul's prayer for the church here begins and he says, I don't want you simply to be people who have knowledge in your head. I want you to experience the line over. (laughs) I want you to know what it's like to walk with Jesus. I want you to have the epignose, the experiential knowledge that changes how you look at things. It's no longer just a theory. So Paul begins and says, I pray that God will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the epignose, the experiential knowledge of him. In verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know, and this is the other word for knowledge or knowing, another word, and this one is factual knowledge. So he says, I pray that you have experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ and factual knowledge of a life following him. 
One of the things that's important to us here that you hear us talk about all the time is we exist to make disciples who demonstrate the transforming love of Jesus. That statement, what it means is we want to make disciples means to help people learn how to be a follower of Jesus. And in that, part of that is this head knowledge. We want to teach you about the ways of God. We want to learn the truths of Scripture. But the other piece of that is so that we may demonstrate the transforming love of Jesus. We may have that epignose, that experiential knowledge of what it looks like to walk with Jesus. And that's Paul's prayer for us. So he says, I hope that I want you to experience, experience the truth and know the truth. Now then he goes into, and I want you to experience and know the following three truths. And these are in his prayer. So when we read these, know that it's to experience them and to understand them in our heads. So the first one is here in verse 18. He said, I pray that your eyes may be enlightened so that you may know, and this is the first one, know what is the hope of his calling. The first thing that Paul wants us to know is what is the hope of his calling. He wants us to understand it, that when God calls us to follow Jesus Christ, he wants us to understand that there is hope in following Jesus. He wants to understand that we now have a different set of rules that we can live by, that our life is now can be filled with hope instead of despair. He wants to know that we can be new creations, new creatures, a different way to live and exist through life. Know that up here. But he wants us to experience the hope of his calling as well. We see Paul and other writers in the New Testament talk about hope all the time. But one of the things that this hope of the calling means is hope that the gospel or the message of Jesus will not be thwarted. It will continue to grow and keep going. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. Which, by the way, probably is written to people in the same area. Colossae was near Ephesus and they shared letters. It says this, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, it's the gospel which has come to you. In other words, what hope has come to you? It's the message of Jesus Christ. Just in all the world, it's also constantly bearing fruit and increasing. So the hope here is that the gospel that came to you is going through all the world and it's bearing fruit and it's increasing. Even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace, the grace of God in truth. So one of the things that he said, what is the hope of his calling? The hope is that the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, it will not be thwarted and will continue to grow and bear fruit. You know, one of the things that we often are bombarded with is messages of despair, messages of hopelessness, messages that tell us that the message of Jesus is dying. Maybe you hear of the new generation of the millennials who are turning away from God and you hear of other faiths and other religions that are growing and increasing. There's even an increase of atheist congregations that meet once a week and sing songs and read poetry and things. The world's searching for answers, but we hear things like that. And sometimes that can bring almost despair to us. To think, God, are you really able to combat all this? And maybe we feel a sense of hope disappear. But Paul reminds us that that's not true. That the gospel will not be thwarted and the words of God will not be defeated. 
In fact, what we really find is there's reports that are saying that this millennial generation, more and more of them are returning to truth than the previous generation, which is my generation. Even though I think I'm a millennial, I've been told by my wife I am not. (laughs) But the younger generation is actually becoming more interested in Christianity and returning to the faith in different forms than what maybe you and I are used to, but they are returning to the faith thinking of other religions and and the fear that Christianity is the one that's dying. We hear stories of followers of Islam who are converting to Christianity in massive numbers. In fact, one report has up to 7 million converts in the last 10 years from Islam to Christianity. A lot of it at the hands of people who are indigenous to their own community, who have been followers of, uh, of Islam their whole lives, and have had revelation and, and encountering Jesus Christ, and their lives have been transformed and changed. Up to 7 million in the last 10 years are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I recently read of, of one sheikh, uh, sheikh who's like a, a tribal leader, a community leader who became a Christian, and he led 400 other community leaders to faith in Jesus Christ. 300 of them were baptized to become followers of Jesus. So it wasn't just something they said. Their lives were changing and they took a public proclamation at the risk of their own lives. There's one group of followers of Jesus in Central Asia in a country where uh, it's illegal to convert to Christianity and they have this saying, if you are persecuted, just thank God that you haven't been beaten. If you've been beaten, thank God that you haven't been thrown in prison. If you are in prison, thank God that you haven't been killed. And if you have been killed, thank God that you are with Jesus in heaven. Do you think these are people who understand that the hope of the gospel will not be thwarted? They're people who it's not just here in their head, but they have that epignose. They have that experiential knowledge that the gospel will not be thwarted. There's hope in Jesus Christ in the face of even death. See, we have brothers and sisters of Christ across the globe who get this, who are living it. So we, as followers of Jesus, should not walk through life in despair. And you know when despair comes, it comes when we don't have control. When we can't control the situation and we want to, we start to lose hope. But Paul reminds us, may you experience the truth that God is in control and his gospel still is something we can hope in. The message of Jesus Christ will not be thwarted. It will still bear fruit throughout the world. I might start preaching here pretty soon. (laughs) The next thing he prays for. So may you first know the hope of your calling in Jesus Christ. The second part is found also in verse 18. He said that you may know what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints. In other words, may you know the vast richness of what it means to be sons and daughters of God. May you experience the truth of that how great that is. Paul's prayer for us is that we don't just say it in our heads and say, oh, it's great to be a son and daughter of God, but to know it and to experience it. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, he really expands on that, and that's the subject of next week's message. So 
I'm going to spare you this point for today, but know that next week we're going to expand this point. What does it mean to understand the riches of the inheritance of the saints? That's next week's message, but that's the second thing he prays for for us. And if I get into it now, we certainly will be here a little later. So we'll talk about that next week. The third thing that he prays that we may experience and we may know is what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? And that's in verse 19. That we may know and experience the surpassing greatness of the power that is directed towards us who believe. I love this word here of this power. It's a word where we get our word dynamite from or dynamic. It's a spiritually dynamic living force. It's a supernatural power. It's a power that we cannot explain. And it's the power of God working in us. And it says these are in in accordance to the working of his strength and his might. And this this terminology here in scripture is only used in connection with what God does. It's not our strength, not our might. So may we know and may we experience through our lives the power of God that is directed towards us. Now how does that power show up? Let's continue to read in Ephesians chapter 1. Now we're in verse 20 and he says this, the power of God that's towards us, looks like this. It's a power that was brought about in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So the first part of this power of God that's directed towards us is the same power that was at work when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that's alive in you. The power of God, what Paul wants us to know and to experience is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to his followers today. How does that look? I don't know. It looks different in different ways for us. I can stand before you and say, I don't think through me I've ever seen God use the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. I've I've never raised anyone from the dead. I've never seen myself miraculously heal anyone. I haven't. But have I seen God show up in ways that maybe I can't explain? Yes. And I think sometimes I'm very good at saying, God, if I can't explain it rationally, then it doesn't make sense, so it didn't happen. (laughs) When Paul's saying, Ryan, I would love for you to know that the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that's at work and directed toward his, his followers of Jesus. In other words, you and I don't have to go through life in our own power. There are times when we get to the end and say, God, I can't take another step. I need you to. And perhaps sometimes our lives are a little too easy and we don't have to get to that point where we need to fall in God's power. But when we get to those points, can we just remember that God's directing that power, that dynamite towards us. The power was exerted when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. The power also showed up when he placed Jesus far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Do you realize that the name of Jesus Christ, that the person of Jesus Christ is set above all powers and rulers, authorities, any name that has been named or will be named? Do you live your life believing that the God you follow is above everything or do you put him equal or even under? 
Paul's saying, may you experience what it's like to trust that there is no name higher than Jesus. There's no power higher than Jesus. We're entering an election season in our country. Our favorite time of year, right? (laughs) How many of you look at this and just say, oh, our country is about to die? (laughs) Is this the best we've got (laughs) on either side? (laughs) You've got to be kidding me. And despair starts filling in. And Jesus is saying, you know what? I don't care which human is on the throne. I'm above them. Would you just have some hope? Would you trust that I'm God and I'm above that and the things that matter in this world, I'm still looking out after. Our God is able. He's still on his throne. None of our wonderful politicians are above Jesus and they never will be. They never will be. That power so it was made known when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. The power was made known when he placed Jesus above all things. And his power was made known when he gave Jesus his head over the church. That means you and me and all of us gathering together. So it says that uh, he, gave all things, he gave Jesus his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I love there's one translation that says this. He gave Jesus his head over the church for the benefit of the church. Jesus is on his throne and it's for the benefit of those who are following him. We don't have to walk through life thinking it's, it's a hopeless endeavor. We don't have to lo- walk through life thinking we can do nothing in Congo that will help anyone. We don't have to walk through life thinking that the Syrian refugee crisis is something we can't engage in because we're not big enough. Or we can't engage with our own community because they just don't want to hear about Jesus. We don't have to go through life worrying about that because Jesus says, no, 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 I'm above all of that. And that power that's alive in me is alive in you and I can accomplish what I'm going to accomplish and I want to use you. Will you participate with me? Now, I don't know what it looks like in your own life to know and to experience the hope of the calling, the glorious riches, and the power of God in you. But I ran across this video clip of a young girl, an Iraqi girl. And I heard her story and I thought, you know what, I think this Iraqi girl, this Christian, a sister in Christ, I think she could teach us something. So let's end our time and look at her response of what it looks like to understand the power of God in her life and what that looks like in her community with this clip here. 